What happened on that Friday 2,000 years ago is good in that Jesus' death was the culmination of God's plan to save his people from their sins. As we gather to remember that awful and wonderful day, our familiarity with the crucifixion may tempt us to pass by too quickly, to render us unable to see, to really see the enormity of this event. And so we begin with this challenge from the book of Lamentations. From the book of Lamentations, is it nothing to you? Is it nothing to me? Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like his sorrow. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we come tonight, we come to remember that awful and wonderful day. Lord, we marvel tonight. We marvel that the triune God in the Son would sacrifice himself for us. Lord, we ask you to pour out your spirit tonight that we would not pass by quickly. Lord, that you would enable us to really see there is no sorrow like his sorrow for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand and join us as we sing together.
my soul cries out, Alleluia, praise and honor unto thee. Now my debt is paid, and now my debt. gives us a vivid picture of how our Savior suffered on our behalf. We're going to do a responsive reading. I'll begin, and when it says congregation, you guys will join in with me. But I'll start. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom shall the arm of the Lord be revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely.
I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor content on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet. love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown Oh, the wonderful 
drawn near and blessed your name. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And they crucified him with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. To see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross, 
Christ became sin for us, took the blame and bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the on your face bearing the awesome weight of sin every bitter thought every evil deed crowning your blood stained ground this the power Christ became sin for us, took the blame and bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. And now the day
after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put it on a sponge full of sour wine and on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I look around me this evening and I see all these people giving up a Friday evening to mourn the death of someone who died 2,000 years ago. How do we explain this? It's because your son was fully God and fully man. Two distinct natures in one person. He lived and he died. As a result, millions of lives have been changed around the world. Lord, tonight as we contemplate the death of your only son, we pray that you would help us to think very, very carefully about our own sin and your astonishing grace and love and mercy. Reveal yourself to us as we contemplate the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can learn a lot about someone as you think about their dying words. Consider the dying words of these famous people. Uh, Author Emily Dickinson said with her dying words, I must go in, the fog is rising. Thomas Edison with his dying words said, it is very beautiful over there. Bob Marley with his dying words said, Money can't buy life. Ludwig von Beethoven said with his dying words, friends applaud, the comedy is finished. Karl Marx said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Winston Churchill said with his dying words, I am bored with it all. Finally, Humphrey Bogart, the famous actor, with his dying words said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. You can learn a lot about someone as you contemplate their dying words. Well, in the Gospels, we read about seven different things that Jesus said as he was dying on the cross. Seven sayings of Jesus, his seven last words. And each particular saying that he utters reveals to us exactly why he died and what he accomplished. So we're going to look tonight briefly at those seven phrases, those seven last words, to think about what was accomplished on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. First was a word of forgiveness. Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, these words were spoken as Jesus Christ hung from the cross, experiencing excruciating pain. His back had just been whipped. 
His hands and his feet were driven to that cross with big metal spikes. In that moment of intense pain and suffering, amazingly, he asked the Father to forgive the very ones who put him there. Amazing. In that hour of pain, he was thinking about the needs of others. And he was crying out to the Father, interceding on their behalf, asking the Father to forgive them. Here's the point. Jesus asked his Father to forgive his enemies. He's asking his Father to forgive murderers, corrupt politicians, and religious hypocrites. And ironically, his death was providing the very basis by which these very men responsible for his death could be forgiven. Here's the good news. If God can forgive them, God can surely forgive you and me. Maybe you're thinking, Dave, I've done some pretty awful things. Well, these people were murderers, hypocrites, and much worse. And God forgave them because his own son suffered and died in their place. The second word is a word of grace. Luke 23, 39 to 43, Luke writes, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus spoke these amazing words to one of the criminals who was hanging on the cross next to him. This man was guilty of breaking the law. And this criminal had just finished defending Christ. Then he begs Christ for mercy. And amazingly, God utters over him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now how in the world... Can Jesus promise this sinful person paradise or heaven that very day? How is that possible? God is holy, and this person is a sinner. Let me ask you a question. How many righteous deeds did this criminal um, commit? He did not go to church, didn't read his Bible, didn't fast and tithe. He was not a theologian. He did nothing but believe. Now, I can just imagine at this moment, as this criminal approaches the proverbial gates of heaven, I'm sure some of the angels had questions for him. How in the world did you get here? And they begin to quiz him. Criminal, what is justification? He said, I have no clue. What is sanctification? You got me on that one. What is the Trinity? What are you talking about? How did you get here? What are you doing here? All I know was that Jesus, the Son of God, said that I could come. That's how we got there. Grace, a free gift. This criminal did nothing whatsoever to earn heaven. Nothing. The only reason he was in heaven was because on the cross, Jesus suffered and died for all of his sins, every one of them, 
was placed on Jesus. And all of Christ's perfection was given to this criminal. And all he had to do was cry out to God for mercy, which he did. And God extended grace to him. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Are you trusting in God's grace alone? You and I have just as much merit or lack thereof as the thief on the cross. And God extends his grace. Third is a word of love. A word of love. John 19, 26 to 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, what's going on here? Well, Jesus knew his Old Testament, and he knew that he was obligated to obey the fifth commandment, which says, honor thy father and mother. He was ensuring that his mother, probably in her 40s or 50s, who was probably a widow, would have someone to look after her when he was dead and gone. He was obeying all of God's commands, including that command to honor your father and mother. Here's the point. In his hour of greatest need, Christ considers the needs of others, his own mother, as more important than his own. He was a humble, serving, other-centered person. The cross tells us that Christ considers your needs and my needs far more important than his own needs, his own comfort, his own peace, his own safety. If you ever doubt for a moment that the triune God loves you, think about the cross. When Christ was suffering and dying, he was considering your needs, yes, your needs, as more important than his own. He loves sinners. Never ever doubt his love for you for even one second. Fourth is a word of abandonment. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why did Jesus cry out in such agony? We must never, ever forget, before this moment, Jesus had known nothing but perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, which was a great source of joy and strength for him. For all eternity, all he'd ever known was fellowship with the Father, relationship with the Father, love from the Father. For the first time ever in his life on the cross, he experienced the rejection and the abandonment of his own father. Why? Because in that moment on the cross, Jesus had received the punishment that all of our sins deserve. In that moment, the guilt of the murderer, the rapist, the liar, the thief, the child abuser, the drug dealer, the prostitute, the proud and arrogant, the hypocrite, the warlord, all that guilt for all that sin was placed on Jesus. And in that moment, because God the Father is holy, he could have nothing to do with his own son. And in that moment, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because in that moment, all of your sin and my sin 
every single sin you will ever commit, if you're a Christian, was placed on Jesus, creating a rupture between the Father and the Son. And here's the good news. Because Jesus was abandoned and forsaken by his own Father, if you're a Christian this evening, you will never, ever, ever be abandoned or forsaken by God, ever. Because God the Father will always see you as perfect, even though you're not. Because all your sins were placed on Jesus. So no matter what you're experiencing, no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much money you make or lose or how sick you are, God is always with you. He will never, ever abandon you or forsake you because he abandoned his own son. The fifth word is a word of suffering or a word of thirst. John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Now, why did Jesus thirst? We can't forget that Jesus was fully God and fully man, two distinct natures in one person. And in his humanity, he was thirsty because his body was collapsing. It was breaking down. He suffered. He really suffered, causing great anguish, great travail, and thirst. Here's the good news. Because Christ thirsted on the cross, you and I will never, ever, ever have to thirst again. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, as many of you know, through our John series, he promises to give all of us living water that will satisfy our souls both now and for all eternity. Nothing will satisfy your soul like this living water, which represents the Holy Spirit coming to dwell inside of us, the very presence of God in us. We were made to find satisfaction, joy, and delight in one place, in this living water. You and I will never, ever be ultimately satisfied with money and sex and pleasure and more things and more achievements. We've been hardwired by God to find all of our joy, satisfaction, and delight in Him. And because Christ thirsted on the cross, you and I can never, ever have to thirst again in our souls because Jesus has made us pure vessels to now receive that living water. Sixth is the word of, of finality. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The phrase, it is finished, is one word in Greek. It's the word tetelestai. Many theologians think it's one of the most important words in the whole Bible. What is finished? All the work that Christ came to do is finished. He obeyed every single law ever written by God, and he avoided every single sin one could possibly imagine. He has done everything necessary, everything, and I mean everything, to save you and I. And if that's true, there is nothing more for us to do but simply receive and believe. We don't need to go to a certain place. We don't need to perform specific rituals. We don't need to chant something. We don't need to embrace a new philosophy. We don't need to do any more work. All the work has been done by Jesus. 
which means that you and I can rest in God's grace. He has done everything necessary to save you. And if that's true, you and I must repent of all the bad things and the good things that we do to earn favor with God. Because by doing those things, we're basically saying that what Christ did wasn't quite enough. We need to help him out a little bit. But on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, period. It's finished. It's finished. Nothing more for you to do. But believe, and when you do, God forgives all your sins, adopts you, and promises you a place in his eternal kingdom. Finally, seventh, is a word of trust. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus trusted the Father every second of his life, even up to the very end, in the midst of intense anguish and suffering. He still trusted in the Father perfectly. Some of us wonder, do I trust God enough? I mean, I know that I'm saved by faith alone, but is my faith good enough? Do I trust him enough? You don't have to. Because Jesus trusted the Father perfectly on your behalf. Which means that you and I are saved on days when our faith is strong, and we're still saved on days when our faith is weak. We are not saved by the quality of our faith. We're saved by Jesus, and Jesus Christ trusted in his Father perfectly, earning for you and I a perfect record of trust and faith. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging. Even your pastor struggles with days of doubt and discouragement. And on those days, if I get hit by a huge truck, I'm still going to heaven. Because Christ had perfect faith, perfect trust. And that applies to me. You and I can learn much about someone by contemplating their dying words. Christ spoke seven dying words. A word of forgiveness. You and I can be forgiven. A word of grace. We are saved by grace alone. A word of love. You are loved by the triune God. A word of abandonment. You and I will never be abandoned by God. A word of suffering. You and I can receive living water as a result of Christ's suffering. A word of finality. There is nothing more for us to do but believe. And then a word of trust. Your imperfect trust can be forgiven. These seven words tell us about all the amazing things that Christ accomplished on the very first Good Friday. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, all the things that I described, all this good news can apply to you. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner, admit that your sin separates you from God, and then cry out to God saying, God, forgive me, come inside of me, and change me. And the triune God loves to answer that simple prayer. And if you do that, we would love to talk to you, we'd love to baptize you, we would love to invite you to join in the Lord's Supper with us. With that in mind, let's 
pray for a moment and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for all the things that Jesus said on the cross. And we thank you how all these things are incredibly good news for us, sinners separated from you. Father, help us to never ever lose the wonder of the cross. Lord, forgive us for being familiar with the cross. Father, forgive us for forgetting about your extravagant grace. We pray that this meal we're about to celebrate would remind us once again of your great love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let me read from Luke 22 in preparation for communion. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Why did God give us this meal? Many reasons. One of the main reasons is to help us remember what he's done for us. The triune God loves us. God the Father designed a plan. God the Son came and executed it, and God the Spirit applies it to us. When you walk forward this evening to remember the wounds of Christ, remember that Jesus loved you so much, he came to earth, suffered and died, broke his body and shed his blood in your place on the cross. This meal is for all those who doubt God's love. It's for those whose faith is weak. It's for those who are more aware of their sin than God's grace. This meal reminds us of God's extravagant love for us. Now, if you're here this evening and you are not a Christian, this meal is not for you yet. It's only for Christians. It's for those who made a decision to turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus. And that's because this meal is meant to be a picture of the relationship that we have with one another as Christians and with God. So if you're not a Christian, there's no relationship with God yet. But we hope and pray that very soon you turn away from your sins and trust in Christ. And when you do, we'd love to baptize you and invite you to come forward and enjoy this meal with us. But in the meantime, sit back and relax. No one's going to judge you. We're just glad you're here. But watch a picture of broken, sinful people coming forward to find rest, joy, and peace in the rich wounds of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on this meal. Father, thank you for this meal. Send your spirit now to drive home the wonderful, glorious realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that our faith is weak, our love is often cold. Use the bread, use the wine to remind us of Christ's suffering, Christ's love, Christ's compassion, and Christ's grace. We pray these things in his name. Amen. 
when you walk forward this evening, grab some bread and wine or grape juice, and then head back to your seats and sing with us and partake whenever you're ready. If you'd like prayer for anything, there'll be people on my right and my left, and they would love to pray with you for anything you'd like prayer for this evening. With that in mind, please come forward whenever you're ready. Resurrected as we will. 
Join me once more in prayer. Our great Father, thank you for gathering us together tonight.
Thank you for the great opportunity to look and see afresh at the sorrows of your great son Jesus for us. Lord, what we need most tonight, tomorrow, is for your spirit to sink these things deeply into our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I would invite you to come back on Sunday morning for the rest of the story. Jesus' death and crucifixion is not the end of the story. And so please come back Sunday morning where we celebrate his resurrection, his victory over death and sin and Satan. As we close our service tonight, I just invite you to look and see that in the death of his son, God has resolved to reconcile you to him. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You are dismissed. Go with God.